There's no shortage of ups and downs in the Middle East impacting Israelis and Palestinians. Conflicts in Gaza, changes of the Israeli government, looming Palestinian succession, the debate about two states versus one state. Where is the Israeli and Palestinian public opinion on all this? How does public opinion impact decision-making? What impacts public opinion in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza? And what can we learn about public opinion that gives us deeper insight into the conflict and into these societies? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we're exploring a series of policy dilemmas facing Israel, tough calls that require courageous leadership and creative thinking. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and director of the Coret Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey examining Israel's tough policy decisions with you. Former Israeli President Shimon Peres was very fond of the following sentence. He would say, Public opinion polls are like perfume. They're good to sniff, but they're terrible to swallow. In other words, it's important to take a pulse of the public, but ultimately leaders bear the responsibility to shape public opinion and not be shaped by it. This is true. However, the Palestinian Authority has not held an election since 2006, and its leader Mahmoud Abbas is reportedly 86 years old. In contrast, Israel has held four elections in two years and sometimes seems paralyzed by recurring trips to the polls. The absence of Palestinian elections is one factor that makes people want to understand what do the Palestinian people actually think? How do West Bank Palestinians internalize conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza? Who do they want to succeed Mahmoud Abbas? Do Gazans like Hamas? If they don't, are they afraid to say so? For their part, Israelis are split on their support for former Prime Minister Netanyahu, support for settlement expansion, and the role of religion and state, just a few issues among others. Of course, the most looming of all questions is what do Palestinians and Israelis think about a two-state solution? The 1990s were a period of hope for Israelis and Palestinians. In 1993, the Oslo Accords marked the first official agreement between Israel and the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. Today, the leadership of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization will sign a declaration of principles on interim Palestinian self-government. It charts a course toward reconciliation between two peoples who have both known the bitterness of exile. However, the euphoria of the 90s quickly gave way to the despair of the 2000s. The resurgence of the conflict during the Second Intifada made hopes of a two-state solution more and more distant amid failed efforts to broker an end-of-conflict deal. Support for a two-state solution has become distant in both communities as diplomatic drives have proven to be elusive. Yet what will replace it among the Israeli public, traumatized by recurrent conflict, fewer and fewer think there are simple choices for Israel. A number of reports on Israeli and Palestinian public opinion on the two-state solution have yielded discouraging results. In Israel, support for a two-state solution has dropped from 69% in 2008 to 47% in 2018. Some reports put the number as low as 42%. Among secular Israelis, it rises as far up as 72%, but among religious Israelis, it drops to 20%. On the Palestinian side, while two-state solution 
has a plurality of the options, it no longer has a majority support as it has in the past. Indeed, there's increasingly great ambivalence among Palestinians as whether a two-state solution would be the end to the conflict or part of a larger move to regain all of mandatory Palestine. 66% of West Bank Palestinians and 56% of Gazans state that ultimately regaining all of historic Palestine for the Palestinians should be the ultimate top priority. What do public opinion polls say about the state of Israeli and Palestinian publics? Where do we go from here? Do the leaders shape public opinion, or does public opinion shape the leaders? To discuss these questions, we're joined by three top public opinion experts, Khalil Shikaki, David Pollack, and Tamar Herman. First, I will discuss Arab and Palestinian public opinion with Khalil and David, and then we'll turn to Tamar to provide us with an Israeli perspective. Khalil Shikaki is a professor of political science and director of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research in Ramallah. He's someone I've known for 30 years. Since 2005, he has been a senior fellow at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. Dave Pollack, the Bernstein Fellow at the Washington Institute, is director of Project FICRA and previously served as senior advisor for the broader Middle East at the State Department. David has dedicated much of his life to polling in the Middle East, and I should say I've known him for decades as well. So first, welcome, two friends, Khalil Shikaki and David Pollack. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, David. Happy to be with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Delighted. Um, so, look, you both devoted your professional lives to this issue. So, how much does public opinion matter in the Israeli-Palestinian context? Is it static? Is it fluid? What are the forces that change public opinion? Khalil, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Of course, it does matter. For the Palestinians, this is about how they feel. Uh, in their daily life. They live under occupation, so their feelings are intense. Um, and and leaders, factions, and negotiators all have to be sensitive, even uh, to those attitudes of the public. Even if the system is author- authoritarian, they still need some s- sort of legitimacy, and it comes from the satisfaction of the public. But, but of course, we have to keep in mind that public opinion has to compete along with other domestic and, and non-domestic factors. And that includes, for example, the, the, the nature of the leaders um, and their base. Uh, their base might be of a particular uh, ideological or religious beliefs. And even if the majority does not share that view, still leaders will do what uh, their base wants them to do. The nature of the political system is important. The nature of the elite competition is important. Uh, there are other domestic constraints that are always important. And then there is the role of the international community, the regional environment, where all of this is taking place is extremely important. So public opinion is a factor. It is not necessarily the most deciding factor. Uh, we should not expect public opinion to be either an impediment to making peace or a force for, for making peace. I think the best way to look at it is whether public opinion uh, is essential or not. And my answer is no, it is not essential. There are some aspects of the conflict where attitudes are static. 
while there are others where attitudes are uh, extremely fluid. In matters like vital needs, whether it is statehood, 67 lines, East Jerusalem as capital, uh, sovereignty over holy places, right of return, the symbolic nature of the right of return, are much more static than attitudes regarding, say, constraints on sovereignty, uh, the extent of those constraints, border adjustments, uh, implementation of the right of return rather than the symbolic nature. Matters re- related to, to diplomacy and violence, support for diplomacy and violence, these are highly flexible and they change uh, over time when one can see that, for example, the perception that something is going to happen affects attitudes uh, in various ways. The belief that, for example, diplomacy is, is failing leads more people to support violence. Uh, when violence fails, uh, this leads people to look for alternatives and so on and so forth. So the, the, we, we should not expect attitudes uh, to remain fluid at all times or to remain static at all times with very few exceptions. If you were to say what could improve public opinion for the Palestinians, what, what would, what would uh, towards peace with Israel, what would you point to? I would say three things are uh, extremely important. Uh, one has to do with exposure to violence. Is there violence in the environment? If there is violence, the most likely response of the public is the hardening of attitudes. If there is no violence, the most likely response is different. If diplomacy is underway and it looks viable and successful, uh, uh, this seems to affect attitudes in, in the opposite way, where attitudes become flexible and dovish. This is no doubt uh, one major issue. The second is to do with the uh, daily hardships uh, that that people live in. The the more checkpoints throughout the West Bank, for example, um, will most likely have negative views on the public. Home demolitions, land confiscation, restriction, other restrictions on movement and so on. Uh, The building, the separation barrier, Uh, All these things have had very negative impact on attitudes of those who are directly uh, feeling all those hardships. And the third has to do with what people hear, whether this is leaders, uh, leaders saying negative things about the other side, they don't want peace, for example, is likely to have a very negative impact. Uh, but leaders saying we can make peace with the other side will have the opposite impact. What people hear in their media is also extremely important, and what they hear in their schools. If you have peace education, that is, for example, the focus of the of the of the curriculum, then d- definitely uh, this would have a, a positive impact. Dave, over to you. Uh, how do you see it in terms of the impact of public opinion? Do you agree with? Khalil's criteria? I do agree with Khalil. Uh, I would add a few things. Um, One important point to make is that public opinion doesn't affect the leadership through elections because there aren't any elections. And so in other countries, uh, including Israel right next door, public opinion has a key role to play in terms of electoral outcomes every few years. And that is not the case 
among the Palestinians. So that's one area in which we have to look for more indirect effects of public opinion. And I do agree that even though there aren't elections, the leadership both in Gaza, you know, Hamas, and in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, pay attention to public opinion to some extent. They're, that doesn't mean that they're going to follow it necessarily, but it does mean that they're well aware of it and that they try to influence public opinion. And they also, in some cases, feel the need to cater to public opinion or follow public opinion. One way that we know that is that we know that they pay pretty close attention to the polls. They uh, are at least concerned about some of the findings that these polls show, which, among other things, shows that the leadership in both Gaza and the West Bank does not have a lot of popular legitimacy. And that's something that uh, I think is uh, very much on their minds in determining various actual policies that they pursue. Another thing that I would add to Khalil's analysis is that what I see in my surveys and other surveys among Palestinians is that one key factor is the geographic division into uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Uh, these are people who live under quite different circumstances, different political leaderships or lack of political leadership, different relations with the Israelis, um, the presence or absence of settlers in their midst or of Israeli forces is significant, the presence or absence of armed conflict on a large scale which we see in Gaza, but we don't see in the West Bank, is a significant factor influencing public opinion. And over the last decade or so, I, I find that it's important actually to distinguish between Palestinian public opinion in Gaza, in the West Bank, and in East Jerusalem. It's probably sometimes misleading to lump them all together. When it comes to uh, how fluid or static public opinion is and what changes it. I, I agree. It, it depends on the issue. It depends on the circumstances. Uh, but in general, I would say it's not static. And this is a key point that people miss, I think, too often. They look at a snapshot uh, at a particular poll rather than at long-term trends over time or at changes in attitudes on very important issues, including, for example, the two-state solution, which is one of the key issues, potentially at least, at stake. What changes public opinion are the circumstances on the ground, the messages that people get from their leaders and from the other side. Also, people's sense of long-term as opposed to short-term aspirations or desires or needs. And uh, in, in some cases, what I see is that there's actually a kind of uh, a divergence between people's attitudes about long-term issues and their attitudes about tactical or short-term issues. I would say that that's one of the things that 
requires more attention from political leaders inside Palestine, in Israel, and on the outside who are trying to deal with this whole set of issues. Is it better at a different point in time to focus on short-term pragmatic issues or on longer-term issues of conflict resolution? I just want to get to the issue of if how accurate you feel polling is today in the West Bank and Gaza. And Khalil, I don't mean to embarrass you by saying that I see you as a brave, independent voice uh, for decades there. The world really relies on your accurate surveys that you've, you know, pursue them without fear or favor. But I, I do need to, to ask how, how difficult is it to be a pollster in the West Bank today, Khalil? Do, do pollsters feel intimidated by authorities who don't want to hear bad news? Authorities don't want to hear bad news anywhere. But in some societies, you feel that they could reach in more to try to intimidate. Is it, do you feel that's accurate in terms of the West Bank? There, there is no doubt that the Palestinian Authority is not a democracy and that leaders uh, in the Palestinian Authority are uh, intolerant of dissent and criticism and opposition. Does that in any way affect uh, the work of the center, for example, that I run? And the answer is no, it hasn't really affected us. But of course, I can I can see why you're asking the question and, and how uh, it might, the Palestinian Authority does its best to try to uh, constrain the activities of civil society. We are an NGO, we're not a business. And as an NGO, we come under the scrutiny of the Palestinian Authority. We're not allowed to conduct research without their permission, but we do. We do not seek permission from the Palestinian Authority to do the work that we do, which means the Palestinian Authority is, is unhappy with that, and it, it uses whatever resources available to it, like, for example, preventing us from accessing uh, funds. Uh, the PA can control our bank account. So for all these reasons, I can see uh, why you're asking the question and, and, and why some might be intimidated. And I can tell you over the years, uh, there were times in which the Palestinian Authority did try to put some pressure on us, but it has always been indirect and never uh, directly trying to force us to change things or to stop doing things. Uh, and, and in those rare occasions in which something like this happened, uh, we simply uh, said no, and, and there were no consequences, immediate consequences uh, on that. Now, the other problem, of course, is, is that uh, we have to go to, in an environment where there is no democracy, people are reluctant to speak out occasionally on some issues. Again, we in, in our case, we don't feel that this is really having a large impact on our findings for two reasons. One one reason is that we train our field workers uh, and we conduct our interviews face-to-face. Uh, -face. Training field workers to make sure that the respondents think that, in fact, they are whispering in your ears rather than saying their opinion out loud is extremely important in ensuring that uh, we get accurate uh, perceptions recorded. The face-to-face -face also means that they know who we are and they can check and they can call and they can look at the website and all of that. 
And that is, is also extremely important. My last point on this is that if you look at public opinion at one specific point, uh, the, the concern about intimidation and fear is valid. But if you look at the trend over time, then the concern should be mitigated because you're now looking at attitudes over time under similar conditions. And so these trends tell the story a lot more than uh, simply looking at a snapshot that you take on a particular date under certain circumstances. For, for all of this, uh, I can say that the data that we have, the findings that we have from the surveys, I have a great deal of confidence in, and, and I feel that we, they do reflect uh, fairly the attitudes of the Palestinian public. Thank you very much, Khalil. And again, thank you really for your service to democracy. So let me ask you, you both talk about the two-state decline, and uh, but you both think these things are reversible and there's nothing here that is fatalistic, uh, deterministic, I should say. What do the people who are one-staters believe? Khalil, I'll start with you, then I'll go to David. Do they one-staters believe Zionism will just disappear and it'll be a binational state? Or do they think that they will be citizens of Israel? Uh, first of all, plurality among the youth uh, is in favor of a one-state solution. Support for the two-state solution among the youth uh, is second place. Uh, what is driving it is what I indicated earlier. Uh, their understanding of it is equal rights. But in focus groups, we can hear the youth articulating how this can evolve. They don't think it is easier to negotiate a one-state solution than to negotiate a two-state solution. They think, in fact, the opposite, that it is harder to negotiate a one-state solution than a two-state solution. But despite that, they still conclude that it is the future, not because the Palestinians want it, but because Zionism uh, is becoming more religious and more hardline. And that as such, its commitment to the greater land of Israel um, becomes more solid and settlers gain the upper hand in determining Israel's policy. And settlers are in fact thinking in terms of a one-state solution, one uh, in which Israeli Jews have the upper hand. So Palestinian youth basically say, well, so the right wing and the settlers in fact are our allies in creating this reality on the ground which we know is characterized by this discrimination against Palestinians. And this is where we then have to play our role, fight against discrimination, demand equal rights, at a time when a return to a one-state outcome is no longer feasible. So what is Zionism to do in this case? Continue in a system of apartheid or grant the Palestinians equal rights? These are the only alternatives that Zionism will have. And since living with apartheid for a long time is simply impossible, Israel will have no choice but to concede equal rights to the Palestinians. Well, I, I have a somewhat different take on this. Um, I, I think that there is a, a small segment of the Palestinian public that is becoming more inclined toward uh, one-state solution in the sense of equal rights. 
but that's a very small segment from in the surveys that I see. Most of the Palestinians who say a two-state solution is no longer feasible and maybe not even desirable, we want a one-state solution. What they mean by that is that the Palestinians will take over all of Palestine uh, for themselves and uh, liberate historic Palestine from the river to the sea. It's not about equal rights. It's about what they see as reversing the historic uh, injustice and restoring their natural right to be the dominant people in all of Palestine, um, eliminating Israel in effect. And when my pollsters or my Palestinian pollsters, the ones that I uh, contract to do these surveys, ask very detailed questions offering different options, including equal rights, but also liberating all of historic Palestine from the river to the sea for the Palestinians. That's the pattern of responses that uh, we tend to see. And uh, there isn't all that much difference uh, between younger and older generations. So, so, so then, then, when you, then when you dig deeper, as I try to do in my surveys, and I ask, well, uh, are we talking about you know, the next five or 10 years, or the next 20 or 30 years, or the next 100 years, when is all this going to happen, uh, and why is it going to happen? Then you see some very interesting patterns, and one is that this is viewed as a very long-term prospect, not over the next five or ten years, but over the next 30 or 40, or maybe even over the next hundred years. And I think I'm the only one who asks uh, really long-term questions like that, and of course, Many, many people, in, when you ask them about 100 years, uh, many Palestinians quite rightly, in my view, say, how should I know? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen in the next 100 years. But then if you ask, well, why, why is this going to happen? Then you get different responses. Some Palestinians will tell you it's because God is on our side. That's a significant chunk of uh, the respondents, probably about uh, 25%. Some will say it's because eventually the Palestinians will outnumber the Jews. So uh, for demographic reasons, the long-term, very long-term trend is in our favor. Very few say that Israel will simply collapse or that it will be defeated militarily in any imaginable future that they can foresee. If you put this all together, what, what you get is that trying to look at this from a very long-term perspective, 30 or 40 years or even 100 years into the future, I would say that uh, probably around half of the Palestinian population, young and old alike, believe that uh, this is the future, not a future of equal rights or one state in that respect, but a future of taking over Palestine for the Palestinians. And the other half are more inclined to project or predict that, no, Israel will still be there, and we're going to have to just um, live with that one way or another. But what is very clear is that a majority of Palestinians, even if they might be tempted 
to support a one-state solution with equal rights for uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians or for Palestinians and Israelis. They believe that that's not, as Khalil, I think, rightly said, that that's not an easy or maybe not even a possible uh, outcome. If I ask, regardless of what's right or wrong, the reality is that Israel will never allow equal rights for Palestinians, then uh, a clear majority of the Palestinian public agrees with that statement. So that may be something that people on the outside, even here in the United States or in Europe or someplace, think is the, the wave of the future, a one-state solution with equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. But it's not what either Israelis or Palestinians really want or really think is a realistic outcome, even in the very long term. Yeah. I was responding to the question about the youth and their support for the one-state solution and what is driving it. And it's based on focus groups rather than on on surveys uh, that have specifically been uh, designed to, to try and, and figure out w w what is the thinking behind the support uh, for the one-state solution with equal rights. Uh, the, David is right. There is a, a significant segment of the Palestinian public that supports a one-state solution uh, in which the state is the state of Palestine. Uh, whether Jews will live in that state or not and what rights they will have, they might disagree. But most of those are basically driven by an, an Islamist value system and uh, they represent around a quarter of the Palestinian public. And they emerge when you pose the question about preferences. Uh, if you have a magic world, what what would you want to do? It's a different question than given the reality of today, what would you be willing to support? So uh, if, you, if you ask the question in a manner where you are inviting people to express preferences rather than supporting options that they have, uh, you will find a greater number that would support a solution um, that that they prefer based on justice as they understand it. Uh, but if you ask questions about support given various options and given constraints, uh, they will give you an, a different answer, one that is not based on justice, but based on feasibility and fairness. Fairness being a little different than justice. And that is uh, the, the, the issue about uh, feasibility and, and fairness is mostly where we are focused rather than on asking questions about preferences uh, that, that most people, as David said, will say it's not realistic, it's not going to happen. Fascinating. So let me ask you about succession. What does the polling teach us in trying to understand the succession race? Dave, what do you say? Most Palestinians believe, I just put it like this, that, that the time for succession is now. <laughs> and uh, they, they don't think that that's uh, on the horizon necessarily, but they believe that Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is uh, no longer a legitimate leader and that he should resign and that somebody else should take his place. That may be what people think, but they also understand that that's not a likely short-term outcome. And the Palestinian leadership simply rejects that, that uh, 
uh, trend in public opinion. The one thing that I think I would say is that this is not going to be decided based on public opinion. So, Khalil, how important is polling in that succession race, and what does the polling teach us? Well, I, uh, I want to agree with David Pollack. Uh, response, it is highly unlikely that public opinion will determine the post-Abbas succession. If it is up to public opinion, Marwan Barghouti uh, is by far the most popular leader. He is not uh, only from Farah, uh, but he is also someone who has the support of people of from various value systems, the people who are from Farah and, and outside Farah. He is seen as the, the, the man of integrity, the, the, the man who is not reluctant to criticize his own leaders, and someone who is strong and has the initiative in responding to Israel. And that he is a Democrat, a young God, and, and that he is a unifier, will unify the West Bank. These are all attributes that the public doesn't think Abbas has. And so over the last five years, uh, somewhere between uh, 60 up to 70 percent have demanded Abbas's resignation. Uh, and uh, Marwan Barouthi is certainly seen as the person who should uh, be replacing him. Uh, of course, Marwan Barouthi is spending several life sentences in an Israeli jail. So this is uh, also not all that realistic in the short term. Um, but that is where the public is in an authoritarian system, uh, usually those who are in line for succession are reluctant uh, to show themselves and to criticize or to make themselves popular. That is what we have here. Unfortunately, um, Baruthi is sort of uh, invulnerable to that because he's in jail and, and, and he has all that popular support. So he feels free to criticize and to show himself to the public. Um, there, there is therefore a person who is very popular and, and there is no doubt that other Farah leaders, if they are to express themselves more openly and more frankly and more boldly, they might also have a chance uh, to, to compete with, with Barghouti. But so far, unfortunately, there hasn't been anybody from within the secular nationalist movement Farah uh, to compete with Barghouti. And that leaves Islamists. Uh, among the Islamists, uh, Ismail Haniya, who is the uh, head of Hamas, is the most popular. Uh, he can beat Abbas in our last survey. He did that very easily, but he can never beat Marwan Barouti. Fascinating. Look, I could talk to you guys for hours upon hours and hours, and we just scratched the surface here. So this means we got to do it again, and really checking in with really two people, veteran uh, pollsters who have really devoted their professional lives to this issue uh, in, in Ramallah and Washington. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, David. Happy to be with you. My great pleasure. Thank you both. Okay, so we just heard perspectives on Palestinian opinion, but what about Israeli public opinion? To help us dig deeper into this, I had a conversation with Tamar Herman. Tamar Herman is a senior research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute and the academic director of the Viterbi Family Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research. Additionally, she's a professor of political science at the Open University. 
Hi, Tamar, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, David. It's always good to hear your voice. So we're talking about the role of public opinion, and when do Israeli leaders try to shape public opinion, and when are they content to be led by public opinion amid concern for their electoral base? Actually, I can give you a one-word answer, and the answer is always. They are always trying to shape public opinion, and at the same time, they're also always led in a way by public opinion. It's a two-way influence, actually, because, uh, you know, uh, there is some intimacy in the leader's public relations in Israel. It's a small country and uh, the uh, voices of the people are immediately heard by uh, the leaders. This doesn't mean that they always respond, but they hear and they react. Uh, And and they also try to shape public opinion because uh, it's a very attentive public. So they're in a way conducting uh, an ongoing dialogue without, of course, the leaders admitting that they are always corresponding with the public opinion because otherwise people will start doubting the the leadership uh, qualities. Do you think that there's certain issues where they're willing to be bolder in shaping public opinion and there's certain issues that are too sensitive that they're willing to be led on? I'll give you uh, an example. For example, uh, we have the question, or should they or should they not close Ben-Gurion Airport because of uh, the COVID-19 new variations? And uh, in fact, maybe on the totally rational level, this should have been done but they know that the public reaction would be very, very angry. So how can one close down uh, Ben-Gurion Airport? And they wouldn't really do that, not because their advisors would tell them not to do it, but because they don't want to challenge public opinion on on these issues. Uh, They are less open to public opinion influences regarding, for example, relations with Iran or actions taken against Iran. So uh, of course there are issues uh, uh, on which they will be more attentive and issues that they will rely more on experts or the military or, or, other kinds of of advisors, maybe even uh, influences uh, of the U.S. administration, but they are always attentive to what the public has to say. No one, as of today, as I already mentioned, can ignore public opinion, even on the most uh, sensitive issues. In our book uh, that Dennis Ross and I wrote, Be Strong and of Good Courage, uh, we quote Ariel Sharon at one point saying, he said, I'm the last of the leaders who's willing to make a historic decision on this issue while he says, I think all my successors will be more political. Do you think, if you look at the Palestinian issue, uh, that in some ways Israeli public opinion never recovered from the second intifada of 2000 to 2004, a second Palestinian uprising, which was particularly violent. 
and this is when the Israeli public opinion moved to the right. What do you think it would take to bring it back to the center? Well, I suppose that right now uh, the situation is very convenient for most Israelis. They have no motivation to go back to the table. Now, the question what can make them more open to the option of getting back to the table? And here the repertoire is quite limited. If things will get very painful for Israelis, uh, if, if it will be painful from the Palestinian side, I mean, if Palestinians will resume uh, the intifada, second intifada style of violent uh, uh, actions against Israelis. So this may, uh, it may boomerang uh, in the worst direction, but it may also convince Israelis that the costs are too high. If the international community will penalize Israel for not getting back to the table, or if some very huge compensation uh, will be offered to Israel. For example, Saudi Arabia will say, we will give you this and that, and we'll also keep an eye on the Palestinians. This may be a positive incentive. So we uh, can think about negative incentives and positive incentives, because right now, without such incentives, there is no desire on the Israeli side to get back to the table, because this may increase the domestic conflict between the supporters of such a move and the opposers of such a move. And we experienced a very tough time during the uh, Oslo days and Israelis do not wish to go back to that period. So unless the circumstances changes change very dramatically in the positive or the negative direction, I don't see people getting back to the table, at least supporting such uh, a move. And of course, if we will have uh, a leader that will be able to frame the resumption of the talks in such a way that the public will find it tempting enough, but I don't see such a leader in the horizon as well. And the first one about the use of violence, I mean, it seems to me that's what killed the Israeli peace camp. Uh, if violence was thought by Hamas or others that they would make Israel more amenable to changes, it just seemed to me that Israel never recovered from uh, things going off the tracks. Uh, as one general uh, pointed it out to me, he said, we, we were at least on a track and then we never got back on the track, he said. So it seems to me the use of violence if history is an example, that it's that that's a very that's a big gamble. I agree with you that uh, very severe violence can shut the door completely. Let me ask about Bennett himself about talking about moving to the center. You know, you've had an example of Ariel Sharon and Sippy Livni. Each one is a unique case, but these are two leaders from the right that moved to the center. In the case of Sharon and Livni, they moved from their ideology because they had the sense of national responsibility that felt that they could not ignore these challenges. As you see Naftali Bennett, yes, he comes from the right wing, but he's actually lost uh, a good part of his base when he moved to lead this government that's a hybrid of right, center, left. 
Arab, do you think the lack of a base allows him to move more easily because he's not weighted down by a heavy base? Of course, it, uh, in, in a way, it liberates him from uh, being committed to uh, the hardliners uh, uh, within his uh, constituency. But in a way, all Israeli leaders of the right, when they uh, started to become the national leaders, moved in a way to the center, even Netanyahu in a way. When you are in charge, you see things differently than when you are uh, in the opposition. So I think that he is not necessarily Bennett, he's not necessarily moving to the center, but he feels uh, all the responsibility on his shoulders and, and therefore actually follow the footsteps of uh, much stronger leaders who did the same, who took the same course in, in moving to uh, uh, the center. So it has uh, less to do with losing his constituency than him being the prime minister and, and therefore being responsible for uh, the outcomes of policies that would match his uh, right-wing ideology. The term one-state solution is used both by people on the right and in Israel and people on the left on the Palestinian side, but it means very different things. The right means one state everywhere, Uh, Israel, West Jerusalem, you know, East Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza, everywhere. And the Palestinians, when they say, and not just Palestinians, I should say, when they say the word one state solution, they mean a binational state. They mean no Israel as we know it. But as you see this whole idea of the one state, which part is gaining traction from your polls? And what would it take for the two state solution to return to the majority it had a few years ago? It's a very interesting question uh, because a one-state solution is a solution advocated in Israel by very, very small minorities on the left and on the right. Those on the right have in mind a one-state in which uh, the Palestinian citizens or or. I'm not sure that all of them are thinking in terms of full citizenship. But what I have in mind is something that I dare say gets quite close to an apartheid state. In the sense that they don't really mean to give the Palestinians equal uh, uh, citizen rights, be them collective rights or individual rights but they don't think about one man, one vote, South Africa style, which is the the solution that is being advocated by a a very small minority on the left. This will make, uh, by their their imagination, we will have a a one-state solution in which Palestinians and Jews will have equal rights regardless of their uh, demographic shares because uh, uh, very shortly 
the Palestinians will outnumber the Israeli Jews. If you take the Palestinian Palestinians and the Israeli Arab citizens, then uh, uh, the demographic balance will change dramatically. But the advocates on the left think that it should be a state of all its citizens and, and, and nationality is not important here. Uh, the mainstream doesn't buy this solution or the other solution. Actually, level of support for a one-state solution in Israel is extremely low, and they see it as a, a Palestinian uh, maneuver in order to mobilize public opinion uh, in the world. This is also a, a kind of uh, a dialogue of two sides who do not listen to, to each other because uh, the Israelis do not believe that the Palestinians really mean uh, a one state with equal rights to everyone. They see it as, as a means of actually outnumbering the Israeli Jews and uh, if not uh, a threat to the very existence of the Jewish people, then certainly a huge threat to the uh, Jewish state. Bringing the two state back, it gets to the, what you said before about, uh, you know, that there would be some move by the Gulf states, just like uh, Israel got off of annexation because there was a better offer of uh, normalization with the United Arab Emirates. So if there's something tangible, you think it could bring the two-state idea back? Actually, when we uh, ask people what is the favorable solution, over 50% still say that the two-state solution is the only game in town. However, they don't see it materializing. So it is not that people have totally disengaged themselves from the two-state solution. They just think in terms of the status quo and they don't see why they should uh, compromise on a two-state solution. But if you push them uh, with the back to the wall and tell them, okay, we will have to find a solution other than the status quo, then the only thing that comes to mind of most Israelis is the two-state solution. It would be interesting in your poll, of course, that people mean different things by this, but, uh, you know, both Bennett and uh, Foreign Minister uh, Yair Lapid have both said, you know, this line, we want to shrink the conflict. We want to minimize it, reduce it. Uh, there might be some things we can't solve, but between um, uh, solving the conflict and managing the conflict, we can uh, reduce the conflict to its minimum. I got to believe that would be a popular idea. Absolutely. Because Israelis are not warmongers in this regard. I mean, they, they are not in love with the conflict. They, like, like everyone else, they uh, would favor a situation in which they will not have to pay very highly for the rather convenient life in Israel. And if the Palestinians come and work in Israel, and if there is no risk of a third intifada, and if uh, Hamas uh, can actually be bought by Qatari and other states' money, then uh, from the Israelis' point of view, uh, the situation is, is, uh, is not perfect uh, because they know that in the horizon, 
we can see future waves of uh, bloodshed. So, so the conflict is not something that they cherish uh, uh, per se, but they have learned to live with the, with the conflict and they are just trying, uh, rationally, I have to say, to reduce the costs because peace will be much more costly from their point of view. So let me ask you, we just had a, an interesting back and forth between Khalil Shakaki and David Pollack on the distinction between unfettered aspirations versus realistic policy options. Khalil says, well, the Palestinians may dream of no more Israelis, but most Palestinians believe this is unrealistic. As a pollster, how do you distinguish between people's, you know, you know dreams uh, and their measured judgment about what is realistic? Well, in the past, I'm sure that you remembered, we had two questions uh, that we asked in each poll of uh, the peace index. We asked, uh, do you think that peace with the Palestinian is desirable? And do you think that such a process may bear fruit in the foreseeable future? And we saw that many more people thought that it is desirable than the number of people who thought that uh, it may come true. And we found out at the time that they act by their, as if, more realistic assessment than by their desires. I suppose that people have two perspectives. Their dreams, as you refer to it, in your question, and their, what they consider to be a realistic assessment of uh, the options. So on that note, I want to thank you very much for all your time today and uh, only wish you good health and good spirits. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. We just had two sets of discussions, one with two pollsters putting their finger on the pulse of Palestinian public opinion and one on Israeli public opinion. What I take away, there's so many takeaways, so it's hard to boil it down into just one. But I think what we heard was an interesting debate between Khalil, who thought what counts is people's look at policy options, because those are tangible here and now decisions that are very real. And what what counted most for David was a belief, where are people's dreams? When we talked to Tamar, I think it got much more involved in terms of looking at polling in in the wake of after having four elections. And there's a fatigue there after people go to the polls four times in two years. At the same time, she said that you have a new government in Israel, and the new government does impact public opinion. And therefore, it would be wrong to look at public opinion in the abstract. So I think what we're left with when you add these two conversations together is that it's a constant conversation in terms of where the leaders lead the public and where the leaders follow the public. And the nature of the Israeli-Palestinian relationship is always going to be essentially a conversation of both, of how leaders interact with their publics and how do they interact with each other. Sometimes the leaders are ahead of their public and sometimes the leaders are behind their public. And how they navigate those sets of conversations is going to be key for understanding Israeli-Palestinian relations going forward. 
I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of season three. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible, our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all.